Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship of Huntsville. It's great to see everyone here. Beautiful day today. We're going to have a beautiful week of weather. So uh, if you are visiting with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. There should be a card underneath the seat in front of you called the connection card. You can fill that out, turn it in electronically with the QR code. You can do it with pen or pencil, drop it in the box in the back. That's also where we take offerings is in that box as well. So today is National Depression and Withdrawal Day. <clears throat> so if you see any particularly men walking around sweaty, dazed, not really sure what's going on, maybe cuddled up in the corner, crying, anything like that. I mean, men don't really cry, but they could tear up. Just having a hard day. Uh, this is the day that they go home, they take the remote, and reality sets in. There is no more football. It is gone for months and months and months and months. So they get their garage cleaned out and um, get on to more productive things. I speak of that from experience. So, all right. We are in uh, uh, CF in John chapter one, going through the book of John. We're in uh, verse 35. We're going to cover 35 to 51. Yes, that's correct. 35 to 51. So if you would turn to John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. <clears throat> this is where Jesus begins to call his disciples. Really an exciting time. You can imagine the interaction, the discussions, the emotions that are going on. <clears throat> Again, <clears throat> excuse me. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus and he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with them that day. Now it was about the 10th hour, verse 40. One of the two heard John speak and followed him, who was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. And the following day, Jesus uh, wanted to go to Galilee, and he followed, or sorry, found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, or Bethsaida in the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I saw you, or said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and all that you bring forth to us, the stories of men and their lives being changed. And Lord, I pray that we will see this and begin to understand it, begin to understand who you are, how you call men to you, draw them in, what your purpose on this earth was, all the things that are wrapped up into these stories. I pray, Lord, for the truth to be made known to us and to our hearts, that you will speak through CF and that your spirit will move in our lives. And we just say this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to have you with us this morning. If you would just open to the passage that David read. That's going to be our passage for today. We're going to see the first followers of Jesus. First ones that uh, 
come alongside him as we follow this story. If you're visiting with us, we are going through a study in the Gospel of John. And in going through this study, we, uh, we're going to go verse by verse, go through it. We're on a, a narrative portion of Scripture today. So I can cover a lot of ground because it's one composite story. But it's a very revealing story about how Christ chose his disciples. So let us go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll take a look at it, okay? Father God, we come before your throne of grace in prayer and we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and love toward us, for the many blessings that you give us in this life and just for the opportunity to be here today and to study your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would open this word up to us, help us to understand and comprehend it, put it to use in our life, that we can better serve you, that we can follow you, that, Lord, we can make application and serve others and live for you for your glory. Father, I pray for those that are faced with a struggle or trial in their life, that, Lord, they find comfort in this word today and that you'd minister to their hearts. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What we're going to have in this portion of Scripture in verses 35 through 51 is some of the first elements. I mean, John the Baptist is already witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And you're going to have continually through the Gospel of John people that witness to this truth or make statements to this truth. And this is all in line with the theme of the book of John, which I told you at the outset which is found in John 20. It's one of the few books in the Bible that tells you the theme of the book or the purpose of the book. And that's in John 20, verse 30 and 31. The passage says this. It says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he says the purpose of this book is so people may know that Christ is the Son of God. And by knowing that he's the Son of God, you may have life in his name. And so if, if anyone's ever struggling on the deity of Christ or the person of Christ or what he did, what he stood for, what was his purpose, Send them to the Gospel of John, because John says that's the purpose of this book, man, is that you can know who Jesus is and that he is the Son of God. So the way he does this is he brings witnesses forth that testify of it. And we're going to see three witnesses today that testify. Now, when we begin with this portion of Scripture in verse 35, you will notice it says, again, the next day. And if you will go back to verse uh, 29, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, okay? And then when you go back even further and you go back to verse 19, you have a day. Because in 19 through 28 is one day, and 29 says, and the next day. And then when we get 35, it says, again, the next day. And that's the next day following the previous one. So this is day three of the ministry of Christ. And if you're following the chronology of the Gospels or whatever, this is where Matthew picks up the story is after he's been baptized and he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and fasts. Then he comes back and it begins his ministry. So when it begins in verse 19, this is the first day after his 40-day fast and how much ever time it took for him to regain his strength. I mean, he, it says the angels came and ministered to him. We don't know how long that period was. But then he begins his ministry in verse 19. So this is after he's been baptized. And when John speaks, John the Baptist, speaks in 19 through 28, he tells those people, he's out here, he's among us. So he's already recognized who he is. Then you get into verse 29 through 34, in verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he just, he, he points him out right then. And then he's going to, you get to verse 35, and it says, Again, the next day John stood with his disciples. So that gives you a picture of how the chronology unfolds there. And John is in the wilderness. He's not 
just preaching, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. No, he's preaching about the kingdom that's coming and the need for their repentance and interjected in that is, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I've been telling you about. This is the one that, that I came before, but he's preferred before me. This is the one that this whole message of repentance that you need to be prepared to receive the kingdom. This is why it's here. And so John's been preaching that in the region. So we pick up the story in verse 35. Again, the next day, John, that's John the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Very similar to what he said the day before. So he's still identifying Christ to the people that are around him. Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now these are disciples of John that are going to leave John and now they're going to follow Jesus Christ. And John doesn't try to keep them. John understands the function and purpose of his ministry is to do what? The voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the pathway of the Lord, to point people to Christ. That's what his job is. And he's doing a good job of that, okay? So the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus, verse 37. Verse 38, Jesus turns and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? They're asking, where do you stay? And Jesus tells them, next verse, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. Now it was the 10th hour. Now by Jewish day reckoning, the day began at 6 a.m. basically, okay? So the 10th hour, if the day begins at 6 a.m., the 10th hour would be 4 p.m. So what they do is it's about four o'clock in the afternoon or 1600 more accurately. <laughs> they, they, they identify Jesus and they follow him to where he's staying. Where are you staying? We're going to go with you. And they go there and they're going to stay the night with Jesus is what they're going to do. Spend a night with him. Now, I, I can almost assure the scripture doesn't tell us, but I can almost assure you that when they got to that place, they didn't say, well, where are we going to crash, Jesus? They were asking, tell us, John says you're the Messiah. Tell us, tell us about that. How do we know for a fact that you're Messiah? I, would, I don't know what that conversation was, but my guess would be, that it would be very similar to what he did after his resurrection. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. Imagine he began to expound on them, the scriptures related to him and give them further witness of where he was because it's just four o'clock in the afternoon. And I, I can imagine they probably sat around and conversed. Turn in your Bible to Luke 24. In Luke chapter 24, we have the story of the road to Emmaus. And uh, the conversation that Jesus has, beginning in verse 13. So if you'll go to Luke 24, 13. Now follow the story here. It says, now behold, two of them, these are just two people, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. That was about a seven mile journey from Jerusalem. So a seven mile journey, you're talking about a seven hour trip. I mean, six, seven hours at least to go that far as they walk. If you've ever been in that area, it's very hilly, very, very hilly, uh, monstrous hills. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, this is right after his resurrection, the crucifixion, the three days in the tomb, and now the resurrection is probably the very day after his resurrection is what it is. It says, so it was while they conversed and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained. So in other words, they couldn't identify who Christ was. So that they did not know him. And he said to them, 
what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? I love this. It's obvious his eyes are restrained. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? I mean, he knows. I mean, he, he's, the, he's the one that was there. But what is he doing? He's wanting them to know. He's wanting to find out what they know. And they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. It was day six or whatever since his crucifixion. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the, woman, as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, really what they're looking for, the key is in that verse up there, verse 21. They believe that he was going to, re going to redeem Israel. He has redeemed Israel on the cross. What are they looking for? Physical redemption. Redeem us out of the control of the Romans. That was their view. You're going to see later on in John's ministry, John's in prison. He's doubting if Jesus is the Messiah. And he's seen the Spirit of God descend upon him in the form of a dove. Likeness of a dove. And he's heard God speak from heaven. This is my beloved son. And he's going to doubt. Why? Because they had a preconceived idea in Israel that this redeeming Messiah was going to overthrow the yoke of Rome. Now, he'll do that in his second coming. But in this coming here, mm-mm, not happening. He's coming as the meek lamb, but he's going to come as the roaring lion in judgment. See the difference between two. And so they have this understanding. And so Jesus responds in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He went all the way back into the law and what he's doing is he's showing how everything written in scripture related to him. You can imagine what that conversation would have been like one of the greatest Bible lessons that has ever been taught on earth because Jesus has given them a clear picture of everything that pertained to him. Then they drew near to the village where they were going and he indicated that he would have gone further, but they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with him. So he goes in our house. And it came to pass as he sat at the table with them and they took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he was talking with us on the road? And when he opened the scriptures to us? So you can imagine what that conversation was like as Jesus expounded all through the scripture of everything that related to him, beginning back with Moses. That's Genesis, folks. And so he took all the way through the book of Moses, all the way through all the prophecy, the Psalms, the Proverbs, everything in there. He just showing them everything in here is me. And then their eyes are open and they're astonished that this is him. 
But see, their hearts were burning because they were thinking, how does this guy know all this stuff? I'm sure that's what they were thinking because their eyes were veiled from recognizing him for who he was. And so back to John 1. If you go back to John 1, it says, it was the 10th hour, the end of verse 39. And it says, one of the two who heard John speak and follow him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And so they stay with him that evening and what they do is they get up the next day and the first thing that Andrew does is he goes and he finds his brother, Simon. And he's going to be named Peter, but he goes, finds him. You know, one of the weird things about scripture or unique things, I shouldn't say weird, it's unique. That is that, that Andrew goes and finds Peter he brings him to Jesus, and then all through Scripture, Andrew is referred to as Simon Peter's brother. It seems to me like it ought to be Peter, Andrew's brother, because Andrew was the one that found him. Why is Peter the one that has all the glory, and Andrew is Simon Peter's brother? He takes second place. It's because of the role and position that Peter's going to take. Peter is one of the three disciples that has a very close relationship with Christ, Peter, James, and John. They get more instruction than the others. They go on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then you look at them, and they also are the ones that set forth the first sermons in the kingdom. Peter is. Very significant figures in the, in the scriptures, very well-known positions that they had, but, but Andrew, after this night of staying at that house with Jesus, Andrew's convinced, and he goes and finds his brother Simon. Now, who is this other disciple? Because he's not named or mentioned. And verse 35 says, the next day John stood with two of his disciples. And so it's Andrew and somebody, and it's very likely John, the author of John, is who it is. Because John never refers to himself as being there. And only later in the writings, you know what he'll call himself? The disciple that Jesus loved. So he puts himself kind of like out of the picture as the author. Because the next day, Andrew gets up and he goes and he finds his brother. And it says he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we, me and John, have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. Now, the word Messiah is right out of the Hebrew. It means anointed one. And Messiah is the Hebrew word, and Christ is the Greek word for, for anointed one, okay? So when they say Messiah or Christ, they're talking about the anointed of God, the promised son of God, okay? And he brought him to Jesus, verse 42. Now, when Jesus looked at him... He said, you're Simon, the son of, of Jonah, or the son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which is translated stone. Now, I don't know about you, but if the, the moment I met somebody, they changed my name. <laughs> I said, you're, I'm going to call you. I mean, someone gives you a new name right off the bat, you would start thinking, who is this guy? What is going on? I can't even imagine what it was like for these disciples to see him. But he says, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated stone. Now, that's a very important statement because later on, Peter's going to live up to it. Jesus is going to once again say, you are Peter. And upon this stone, upon this rock, I will build my church. And there's a lot of misunderstanding on it. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew 16, go back to Matthew 16. We'll look at that real quick. Pull this thing together and look at verse 13, Matthew 16, 13, where the statement is made. And the reason I say this is Catholic church, Catholics believe that the stone upon which the church is built is Peter. Okay. Protestants who rightly interpret scripture, do, do not believe that. They believe that the rock upon the church building is Jesus Christ, okay? 
So let's look at the passage. You decide for yourself. I say Protestants that, that believe rightly of the scripture. There's Protestants don't believe that. You understand? I'm not saying against Catholics. I'm saying among Protestants that have a right understanding of scripture, they understand what this means. And what it means is, is that Jesus is the rock. So let's look at it. When Jesus came into the region, that could have been like a dual prophecy, though. It could have been towards the Catholics and then towards the Protestants, too, there that believe rightly. You understand? Contrast in both. You see that in Scripture, too. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? In other words, who do you think I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And Barjona means Simon, son of Jonah or Simon, son of John. That's what it means. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, this is a revelation of God. You didn't come up with that on your own. God opened your heart, opened your mind to understand that. That's a move of God. So God has revealed this to you. It's not something that a human can figure out. And what is it that he gave him? You are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And to be son of God means be equal of God. You're of the same essence as God. Okay, that's what he's saying. And also I say to you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, what rock is the church built on? Well, certainly it's not built upon Peter. Peter's a fallible man. And how do we know that? Well, after the resurrection of Christ, Peter defects and leaves the faith. He goes back to fishing. Why would God build his church on the feeble, sinful human being? unstable, fearful, runs away, scared of a girl at a campfire while Jesus' trial is going on. That's not what the church is built on. The church is built upon that statement that, that Christ is the son of the living God. Amen. That's what it's built on. Look, if, if, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn over in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is Paul talking about the foundation. I mean, we can look at other passages because Peter himself says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. In other words, he is the foundation upon which the church is built. Peter says that in his writings, but I want to look at what Paul says. Look with me, if you would, uh, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's, what is he talking? He's talking about rewards and he's talking about how you build upon that foundation, which is Christ. So the foundation or the rock upon which the church is built, the declaration is Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. That's the gospel basically, okay? That Jesus Christ is God and died for your sin. That's what the church is built on. So when you get back to John 1 and you look at that passage, it says when he brought him to Jesus, now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, so we got, we're into another day now. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And when he gets to Galilee, he finds Philip and says to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city 
of Andrew and Peter. So you got Andrew and Peter and Philip are all from Bethsaida. John is from Cana or Capernaum, which is right up the road, right across from it. Where are Capernaum and Bethsaida? They're on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So if you look at a map, you'll see the Sea of Galilee. You'll see the River Jordan. Then you'll see the Dead Sea. Okay. They live on the north part of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is where they fish. The Sea of Galilee is almost like an ocean. I mean, it's a massive body of water. And that's where they fish. Bethsaida was a fishing town. And so Andrew and Peter and John and Philip are all from that area. They're fishermen. Now Jesus is picking the people who are going to follow him and be a part of his ministry. And he has access to the whole region of Jerusalem, Galilee, Judea, that whole area. He's got scholars. He's got famous people all over the place. He could have gone city to city and found the best scholar in every city to bring his followers. But where does Jesus go? He goes to a fish camp. You think about this now. If you're going to set forth the kingdom of God and institute the greatest religious movement that's ever existed, most people would go seek out scholars and educated people and stuff, but not Jesus. He goes and gets fisher, fishermen, common people. Folks, that is a common theme with God. He doesn't go after the big and famous. He goes after the nobodies. Because when God goes after the nobodies, he can make them into a somebody. And that way it's God bringing that person about. He doesn't need human wisdom. He doesn't need human ability. He doesn't need human skill. He needs a heart that's going to follow him. And that's the quality that these men have. These men have the quality of recognizing Jesus and following him in obedience. And that's what God's after. A humble heart that's willing to serve. But you know, a lot of people won't serve God because they say, well, I'm nobody. Well, teach this class. I'm, I'm nobody and no one's going to listen to me. That kind of stuff. You don't need fame and fortune. It doesn't matter if your background is a fisherman. It doesn't matter. Or in the case of Peter, which you're going to see later in his ministry, he fails the Lord and leaves the faith and goes back into fishing. And Jesus got to go out to the water to get him. Get out of there, Peter. Come over here. And gets him back going again. So if you have faith, and what does he do with him then? Peter preaches the first day of the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. See, God uses the weak and the feeble and the unknown to bring about great things. As long as you're humble and you're willing to serve God, he can use you. It doesn't matter what your background is. Don't discredit yourself. Look at scripture. Look what God does. So it says in verse 44, Philip was from Bethsaida, a fishing town, city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Now, how did Philip know that stuff? Well, I imagine Christ has been telling them. See, he's part of that group and those other disciples that have been with him. They said, let me show you in scripture what he told us. Boom, 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 boom. And when he hears that, he finds Nathaniel and he goes, this is the one that Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Nazareth was a little bitty hillbilly town, a little hick town, very unknown. Nothing famous came out of that town. And so it wasn't like Jesus of Jerusalem or Jesus from Alexandria, Egypt. He didn't come from a famous place. He came from a small, obscure town. And until he begins his ministry, you know what he did? He worked with his father for basically 30 years as a carpenter in the little town of Nazareth. And people that lived around there didn't even really know who he was. They never see him. He doesn't begin his ministry until after he's baptized. The Spirit of God comes upon him. He kicks off his ministry. And his first move is he starts selecting those that are going to work with him. So he was an unknown, came from a small town. 
And I mean, you look at old uh, Nathaniel. I mean, here's a guy that comes from a fishing town and he says, is there anything good comes out of Nazareth? So there's some little rivalry going on between Bethsaida and Nazareth, man. That's a little old hick town, man. That's beat eyes. Ain't nobody, nothing good come out of beat eyes, man. That's Trinity. Ain't nothing good come out of Trinity. Crockett, love lady. I mean, you know, cities think they're better than the other one, but everyone in that city is human beings, right? And so Nathaniel says, anything good come out of Nazareth? And nothing comes out of there. It's just a small, insignificant town. So Philip says, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. That means no hypocrisy, no duplicity. Why is that significant? Because the environment Jesus is coming into is full of religious apostasy. The religious leaders had turned the religion upside down apart from what God wanted it to be. And later in the book of Matthew, Jesus goes in there and just unbraids them, man. He said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You hypocrites, you brood of vipers. Those are not points of congratulations when they come from God. And your whole religion is to point people to God. He says, you are a serpent. You guys are a bunch of vipers. You're a hypocrite. The religious climate of that day had gone down the tubes, folks. It was all about them and their religious entrappings. And they were really blocking people from seeing God. So he sees Nathaniel come and he goes, here comes one that's not a hypocrite. This guy is a true believer in God. These guys were fishermen, but they knew who God was. They studied the word. And so when Jesus started explaining from the word, they, boom, this is him. They knew right off the bat. You know, Jesus didn't have to say, well, you know, guys, this is the Old Testament. And the first book here is the book of Genesis. If you'll turn here, I'm going to show you. No, they knew all that stuff. And Jesus said, you know, in the scripture, you read this, you read this, you read this. And Jesus starts giving them insight to it is what he does. These were guys that were that were followers of God and believed in the word of God. And when Jesus expounded on it, it was like a light came on in their head. They were ready to receive from him. And so Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Verse 48. Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, he says before Philip called you. So Philip called him and brought him to Jesus. So before Philip even did that, Jesus is telling Nathaniel, I knew you. I knew you. And this rocks his mind because he said, how in the world could you have seen me under that fig tree? And you know what he's thinking? This has got to be God, man. He knew exactly where I was. He, he knows that I'm a follower of God. He knows my heart. He knows where I was. And look at his response. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He is convinced also this this little blurb of his omniscience really got him. And so Jesus answers and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe huh. you will see greater things than these? Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. And what he does, he goes back and he quotes an Old Testament passage from the book of Genesis, Genesis 28. And it's a vision that Jacob had, Jacob's ladder. And the picture is, you see these angels ascending and descending upon us saying, and who is the ladder? The ladder's Christ. And what he's saying is the access from earth to heaven is through the person of Jesus Christ. He says, you're going to see some miracles. If you think this little omniscient thing that I did on you, something you watch and see what's going to happen. And he's going to, they're going to start seeing miracle after miracle after miracle. And he said, if you're amazed with that, fix and blow your sandals off, dude. You watch what I do. And he's going to go through town and he's going to do all this stuff. 
He's going to open blinded eyes, straighten crooked legs, call the dead up out of the grave. But the greatest of all is he's going to rise from the dead and show himself to be the righteous heir of the throne, the very son of God. And these men are going to get to see it. And they're going to see it played out before their eyes. And they are insignificant, basically unknown men that came out of a fish camp. And they're going to start, after the resurrection of Christ, they're going to start the church. After three years of training and walking with Christ and filled with the Spirit, God is going to empower them to shake the world. And the work that they began is still going today. You're sitting here this morning. And we stand on the shoulders of these that came before us all the way back to here. What these disciples did. And understand this, when it comes to the kingdom of God, God doesn't need the rich, popular, and the famous. He doesn't need that kind of nonsense. What God needs is he needs people that are willing to follow him. Because see, man puts a lot of emphasis on a person's past. Well, how come... How would God use someone like that? Man, you know what they've done? You know where they came from? You know their story? You know their history? I deal with it all the time as a pastor, and not only as a pastor, but also as a chaplain in the prison. I've dealt with people that have heinous crimes, heinous actions, and they're hung up on that. They'll tell me all the time, chaplain, you know what I've done? I say, I don't care what you've done. God forgives all sin. And God will use anyone that is willing to surrender to him. You live your life and let man define who you are and you'll never accomplish what God wants you to do. You let man put you in shackles. You let man condemn you. You let man put you under a rock. You listen to men that tell you you're no good. You're never going to amount to anything. And you'll live there. But if you'll listen to God and you'll follow him diligently, God will do things that are above and beyond anything you could ask or think. That's who you follow. God forgives your past. God restores your life. God gives you a new future. But you've got to follow him. Just like these disciples, they follow him. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I want to conclude with this because it ties in with his selection of these disciples. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, who are those who are perishing? The unbeliever? Who are those who are being saved? The redeemed of God, those that are born again. You're being saved. God saves you in justification. He is saving you in sanctification, and he will deliver you in glorification. Amen. The tenses of salvation. He says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. In other words, God's not impressed with man's wisdom, not impressed with man's power. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. You don't know God by figuring him out. Just like Peter did not know that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, by figuring it out. Jesus said, you didn't figure that out. God revealed that to you. God revealed it to you. Anything of spiritual significance, God reveals it. Man is incapable of that. So he says, you did not know that. And so it says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign. Why? Because the Jews are the religious ones. They've studied the scripture and they want to see a sign of whether this person's Messiah or not. 
That, that's what they all the way through his ministry. Show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. There's got to be something that, that ties back to the prophecy. And the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. See, the Greeks were enamored with wisdom and thinking and philosophy and thought and being able to figure things out. You can't figure God out through that. You can't figure him out through a sign. He says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, the stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren. Here it is right here. Look at this. You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. In other words, not many. When you look at it, culture ain't a lot of wise people that are brought into the fold. All right. There are not many mighty. In other words, not the big powerful ones. It's not the ones that are noble. Those are not called. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Why does God do that? And the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen. See, the things that man despises and discredits, such as yourself, you're no good. You're not going to amount to anything. God can't use you. Who are you? All that kind of nonsense. That's the person God wants. God can take you and use. That's why I'm telling you, don't let man tell you what you are. Read the scripture and find out who you are in Christ. Because the Bible says you're more than a conqueror. You're an overcomer. You're a victor. You're a champion. You're a vessel of grace. You're a trophy of God. Start re-identifying yourself with the word and not man. Don't let man put you in a box because he will. Man will shackle you and tell you you can't do anything. But God says, I've chosen the foolish things of the world, put to shame the wise. I've chosen the weak things of the world, put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And here's your reason, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you're in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God, take, God scrapes the bottom of the barrel is what he does. He takes the scum. He takes the rejected. He takes the nasty, filthy, dirty, worthless. The people the world writes off. God said, that's what I want right there. Because I'm going to show what my glory and my power can do in that life. And it confounds people when they see it. It blows people's minds when they see it. What God can do with those people. And folks... This year, I've been, in a, I've been saved. This year will be 40 years, and I've been pastoring for 39 and a half. And I can tell you this, man. It blows your mind to see what God can do. It'll blow your mind. It'll rock your world what God can do with people. He'll take the most damaged, destroyed life and flip it around. Flip it around. Some of the greatest evangelists, preachers, teachers that I know come out of the pit of armed robbery, murder, extortion, crimes that would blow your mind. But when God gets a hold of a life, he can turn it around. Destroyed homes. I mean, I know people that are phenomenal in ministry. Been married and divorced three, four, five times. And they get a hold of God and God changes that life. And you won't believe what God can do. People that the world says they're no good. They're not fit. You can't use them. God says, that's the one I want. I want them. He goes to a fishing camp. And he gets a bunch of fishermen that don't have an education. Don't have recognition. 
they probably don't even have good clean clothes on. They probably smell like shad or something. I mean, they're just nasty old dudes. And he picks them guys up and says, come with me, follow me. Come with me. Why? God can do things man can't do. Follow him. Look at who he calls. He calls those people. Line up with God and follow God through the person of Jesus Christ and let him change your life. Let him set your path. Let him determine what your life's going to be. Don't let man do it. Man will write you off in a heartbeat. Man is slow to forgive. Man is slow to let you go. Man loves to keep you under them. Because I can ask people, how's your life? Well, I'm not as bad as those so-and-so. We always know someone worse than us, man. You know, there's always someone worse than us and always someone uglier than us. You know, because Mick Jagger's ugly, but, but that dude that plays with him, that old rotten looking thing, he's way uglier than Mick Jagger, man. Ugly people always got to get uglier people around them, if you notice that. Steven Tyler, he does the same thing. I mean, these people are ugly, but they get uglier people around them because it's easier to point to them. And same thing with scumbags. If you're a scumbag, you're going to get a bigger scumbag to run with you. Yeah, I did that, but old thing right here is the one that really did it. You always got that fall partner you can throw it off on. Like a wife or something like that. You know, it's not my fault, it's my wife. That's what Adam did. Adam said, it wasn't me, it was my wife. That's why I ate that fruit. And he goes, and he goes okay. And then woman, why'd you do it? He said, the devil made me do it. See, that's how, man, we always find someone worse than us. But let me tell you. That stuff's meaningless in the kingdom of God. God will take the lowest and make them the highest. He'll take the tail and make it the head. He'll take the head and put it on the bottom and put the tail on top. Where the younger serves older, God's ways are not man's ways. God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. His ways, his thoughts are higher and beyond ours. And the encouragement I see with these disciples is follow Christ. Surrender to Christ. Follow him. Come and see what he can do with your life. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we just thank you, Lord, that you use the nobodies, the nothings of the world, just like you did with those fishermen, and you make them into somebodies. You turn them around, you change them, you, you empower them. And God, as your word says, with God, all things are possible. That you can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. And Lord, we're truly grateful for that. We're thankful for that. And Father, I pray if there's one here today that's caught in the trap of man's condemnation, that they would, that they would open the door and set themselves free. And stop living for man and start living for you. Start living for Christ and live in the freedom and the liberation that you offer. God, let us do that. Let us yield ourselves fully to you and follow you just as those disciples did. And let us see what you can do with a life that's fully committed to you. Father, I pray if one here today has never trusted Christ, they would trust him today and follow him. For it's in Christ's name we pray, Lord. Amen.